Hey, good morning. My name is Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're with us online, we're glad you're here. It is a snowy day in Tyler. Well, about to be a snowy day. It was snowing a little bit when I came in, but that felt like a lot uh, for here. My kids live, uh, one's out in West Texas where they have, I don't know, three, four feet of snow already. It's pretty awesome. My daughter's in Omaha, and they've had snow since August or something like that. So, But it's, um, it's fun for us to see that come down. All right, here's what I want to do today. So this is, um, we, technically, let me say it this, if we, if we can keep a secret in this room and online, all right, and, and that is that we start a new series next week in the, in the letter to the Ephesians. The, the Ephesians is what we're doing. But here's the thing. I can't wait to get into it, so we have a bonus week today, all right? I want to do a little background on Ephesians. I want us to learn a little bit about uh, this city of Ephesus that was the capital of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor today, we call that Turkey. But in the Bible, back in, you know, 2,000 years ago, that was Asia. It's kind of the Asia OG, I think is the way my son would say it. So, that, that's, um, that's Ephesus, and it is a significant um, city in the story of Christianity in the first century. So it's one of those significant locations. It's a significant central church in the New Testament. It's on the west coast of Asia Minor, or or Turkey, on the Aegean coast. And it was made capital of that whole province by Augustus. At the time that Paul will write Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire, probably uh, somewhere just over a quarter of a million people lived there. And roads from the city, they spread out everywhere in every direction, along the coast and then back through the, the, uh, the, the interior of that continent. It was culturally diverse. It was a, a melting pot of the Roman world. It was also economically diverse. There were all classes of people that lived in Ephesus. Ephesus is the place that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that he fought beasts. I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but that's a, a beast-fighting city, all right? In Ephesus sat one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple that was dedicated to Diana, or in the Bible we know her as Artemis. There was also a statue of Artemis that's there. It's a famous statue. You can go and see the replica of it in the museum over there, Um, and, and so it's a statue of, of Diana of, of Artemis. And what's famous about it is that the torso is um, f- uh, covered in, um, looking to see how many kids we have in the, in the day, with breasts. With, with, and nobody knows exactly what it symbolizes. But Artemis was the goddess of fertility and magic and astrology, one of the 12 Olympians, if you keep up with your ancient Greek mythology, the twin sister of Apollo. And evidently, a meteorite had fallen from heaven at some point at, in Ephesus. And the claim was that the meteorite had the image of Diana on it. And so they were the keepers in Ephesus. They were the keepers of the sacred stone that Zeus had thrown down to them from heaven. In fact, this was the, the beginning of the, 
of the, uh, of the, the building of the, of the temple. Paul visited Ephesus twice that we know of. In fact, probably it was only twice. The second time he was there, he spent three years, maybe a little bit more. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians. He wrote two letters to Timothy, who was the pastor in Ephesus at the time. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, speaks to Ephesus directly as a church. The Apostle John, we know from church history, was likely ended his days in residence in Ephesus. In fact, when we were studying 1 John, we said John probably wrote that letter from Ephesus to the churches in Asia Minor. And he possibly brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus with him. Church history tells us that Onesimus also became pastor at Ephesus. The Onesimus that Paul writes to Philemon about. Well, that's a little bit of background about Ephesus. Two major themes in the letter that we're going to see are, one is that Paul is going to spend the first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians talking about our position in Christ. From chapter 4 to chapter 6, he's going to talk about our place in the world or our place here on earth. What we believe and how we live, our doctrine and our practice. And these two things are very significant. In fact, I would say that the, the height that we reach right off the bat when we open up the letter to the Ephesians, the height of doctrine, the, the air is almost so thin, it is hard for us to even breathe as we take in what Paul is writing to this church. So what I want to do this morning for the remainder of our time is I want to take us to where we are first introduced to Ephesus in Scripture. And to do that, go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. I want to walk through a little bit of Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, and I'll, I'll be efficient about this, but I want you to get a flavor of, of Ephesus, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and some of the significant things that took place there before Paul will end up turning around and writing to this church. So, in, in chapter 18 of Acts, beginning in verse 1, it says this, After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, a tent maker, he stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade. Now, there's a couple of things going on there, and I know you didn't see the word Ephesus or the city Ephesus mentioned, but it, is, it, is, it leads us to what is about to be the introduction to Ephesus. A couple of things we find out at this point. This is towards the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Claudius is the emperor at the time. Claudius got mad at the Jews that lived in Rome. Kicked all of the Jews out. Aquila and Priscilla were a part of that. They landed in Corinth, apart from the body of Christ, there. Uh, they are just making tents, uh, getting by, hoping for Claudius to pass on, because surely the next emperor will be better. But he wasn't. His name was Nero. In fact, he'll be the one that ends up killing Paul. 
But Paul lands in Corinth at a very difficult time in his life. Um, Matt, if you could put up the, the map. If you've got a Bible sitting in your lap, leave your, your finger there in, in Acts 18 and go to the maps in the back. And I want to show you something. Um, this, I think, will be helpful. All right, so this is Ephesus, all right? So this says Asia. This is modern-day Turkey. You fly in. Istanbul is right up here. Um, this is the area where, if you've seen the movie 300, that all takes place. But this is Ephesus, all right? And so Paul, if, you, if we'll follow this orange, what happens is Paul, um, let's see, he leaves uh, Antioch, goes through Tarsus, comes up here. This is the second uh, missionary journey. He stays north. Um, no, red, he stays north, comes up here, has the vision of the Macedonian man. He goes to Philippi, comes down here, Thessalonica, Berea, comes down here to Athens, and that's chapter 17 of Acts. Well, Paul has a difficult time in Athens. In fact, they run him out of there. Nobody listened to him, and he's likely very discouraged. And so he leaves Athens, makes the 54-mile walk to Corinth. And there he runs into Priscilla and Aquila, who in very much, they were like this fresh drink of water in the desert of Paul's missionary journey. Well, if you'll skip to leave, leave, um, leave that up for just a second, Matt. Um, if you skip down to verse 18 of Acts chapter 18. They stay in Corinth for a while, um, maybe as long as a year and a half. And in chapter 18, verse 18, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, uh, took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with him uh, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, here's what happens. They stay in Corinth for a year and a half. They plant a church. They go to Centria, which is right there. And then they sail to Ephesus. This was not a place Paul intended to stay, but it was the port that he landed in. He'll ultimately leave Ephesus and come all the way back down to Caesarea, go to Jerusalem, back up through Damascus to Antioch before he begins his third missionary journey, which will take him right back to Ephesus for the second time. But I want you to see something real quick. Thanks, Matt. We'll leave that. Uh, we can take that off now. In um, Acts chapter 18, uh, verses, uh, verse 19, uh, notice, so they came to Ephesus. He's going to leave Aquila and Priscilla there. And, but not before he goes into the synagogue, because Paul couldn't resist going into a synagogue and reasoning with the Jews. And it went fairly successful there in verse 19, because in verse 20, it says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he leaves there. He ends up going to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver a gift. He makes his way back, which is verse 22 and 23. Luke's going to skip a whole bunch of time there, condense it all. And tells us he gets back to Antioch, reports to the church, and then they send him out again on his third missionary journey which leads him right back to Ephesus. Now, what's interesting in the story of Acts, and I don't think we'll take the time this morning to look at it, but um, there's, an, there's what you would call the Apollos parenthesis that takes place at the end of chapter 18. There's a guy named Apollos who shows up in Ephesus just after Paul leaves. Paul and Apollos keep passing in the night in, in, in Acts. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there with the folks that they, uh, you know, that he'd been reasoning with. Aquila and Priscilla evidently keep that ministry up. Then there's a guy named Apollos. He shows up. He's a dynamic speaker, very charismatic. People want to be around him. 
But Apollos doesn't have all the information about Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus, but he doesn't have all the information. The information he got was from some disciples from John the Baptist, and evidently the word never made it to Apollos that Jesus was resurrected, and now the Holy Spirit had come. So, Priscilla and Aquila, they're listening to him preach. He gets to the end, and he doesn't close the deal. And they think, well, maybe he ran out of time. Preachers do that, and they rush the conclusion. But they begin to pull Apollos aside and say, hey, listen, we, man, we really dig what you're doing. We don't think you know the whole thing. So they begin to, to, to disciple him. They leave from there. They go back to Corinth with Apollos. And as soon as they leave, it appears Paul shows up in chapter 19. Look at chapter 19 real quick. It says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, we saw that, passed through, came to Ephesus, there he found some disciples, evidently some disciples of Apollos. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit, which is kind of bad theology, all right? So they didn't have the whole thing. And he said, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 of them in all. As Paul shows up, there are some disciples there, 12 disciples. Paul has um, some work to do. He's got to clean up. He needs to do a new believers class. And as they're talking through the basics of the faith, he's going to give them the full explanation of Jesus. This is what's going on in Ephesus. He's going he's to finish the story for them about the Christian life. You see, Apollos had had an information gap which had created in these disciples an identity gap. They weren't identifying with Jesus. Well, maybe it was um, Apollos, maybe it was his teaching, maybe it was his teaching style. He had, you know, attracted a small group. Maybe they, you know, they called it the twelve. You know, I had some T-shirts made. See, what happens is, and this is what Paul lands in in Ephesians, in the, in the city of Ephesus. When he lands there, what he realizes is that there have been some people that were attracted to a teacher, to a group, or to an idea. as if though the idea that they were attracted to, this, this idea could somehow do something about their sin. In some ways, that's what John was doing when John was baptizing. It was a preparation for the kingdom to come. It was a preparation for the king to come, to come and wash yourself of your sin. Listen, some of you may view the church that way. You may view religion that way. You know, I come to church or I, I log on or, and I'm going to come and I'm going to, you know, put my time in, come wash myself, clean myself up a little bit. You clean up your life, you start living right. We all, I mean, this is the beginning of the year, right? We're day 10. Probably nobody has completely train-wrecked their resolutions yet, but it's coming. You're probably pretty good at keeping up with your Bible reading so far, but you're still in Genesis. You hadn't hit Leviticus yet. That's coming. For many of them... They'd been attracted by the law of God, but didn't fully understand the grace of God. For them, it was come and clean your life up. Begin, 
Begin doing stuff, the right stuff, whatever that is, for God. Listen, even John the Baptist knew that his baptism wasn't the ultimate answer. He just came to announce that the kingdom was on the way. The kingdom had a problem, a problem of idolatry, a problem of sin. It was a problem that was multi-generational. But the best he could offer was water. He knew there was something better to come. It wasn't his baptism that was going to save anybody. It was going to be the baptism of Jesus. Where you identify with Jesus, where you're baptized into his life. This is how Paul's beginning the ministry there. This is not about all the things you're going to do. It is about identifying with and believing and accepting as your own what it is that Jesus has done. And that that's the place to begin. Paul talks about it to the Romans as a baptism into his death and resurrection. And, and how you identify with Jesus' baptism is to believe he died in your place and that he was raised again so, so, that, so that you'll be raised again. And even though you suffer a physical death, you no longer are dying for your sins. You're dying because you're mortal. And your body's wasting away. But believing that Jesus died your death for sin, you're also believing you'll be raised again in resurrection. To, to believe that he offers you eternal life through his resurrection, baptism with water, now when we do it, we did it just a couple of weeks ago. It's just an outward sign of something that's already taken place on the inside. What you're saying is that God's sending of his son and dying for my sin, that counts for me. So the Christian life, at the very beginning, Paul's having to explain to the Ephesians, it is not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not putting out the oar in your boat and rowing against the wind and the waves for all your worth. Believing that the Son of God has rescued you. Setting the sail of your affections on the only true Son of God. Then yielding to the wind of the Holy Spirit to direct your life. That's how Paul begins his ministry. Well, he quickly moves into what Paul normally does. And this may be a little bit surprising, but most of Paul's ministry is what we would call the ordinary work of the labor of the ministry of God's Word. Look at this in verse 8. He entered the synagogue, which is now the second time. He entered the synagogue. Remember, they... He was at the synagogue the first round. He was there. And they said, we want you to stay. And he said, I can't stay, but if God wills, I'll come back. Well, God had willed. Now he's back. He goes back to the synagogue. And he is there for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's how Christianity was spoken of, by the way. It was the way. It came directly from John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That's how you will refer to as part of the way. And in speaking evil, these people in the synagogue, they were speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them. He took his disciples with him and began reasoning in the hall, daily in the hall of Tyrannus, which I would love to spend about 20 minutes talking to you about that, but I cannot. I will move on. It's so great. It says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. Ephesus. After he takes a group of people who've been trying to save themselves, explains to them the whole gospel 
of how God actually saves us and rescues us. He goes back to the Jews. He begins to teach. They are stubborn. They don't want to hear it, so he goes next door and does it every day. The ordinary work of opening God's Word and laboring and teaching it. And it became the central hub for all of Asia Minor, for all of what we would know as Turkey. And all these churches began to be planted, Laodicea and Colossae and Smyrna. All the churches in that region began to grow, and Ephesus was the hub, and the hub of it was Paul showing up daily and teaching God's Word, a sustained ministry of teaching God's Word. That's the ministry, by the way. We feel very committed that God has called us to here at Bethel, the, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, and it is an effectiveness that we believe is faithful over a period of time. And so we're careful here. We are consciously, on purpose, careful that we don't scheme shortcuts. Paul reminded the Corinthians, some plant, some water, God causes growth. Paul was a faithful steward. He did it every day. That's what we want to do. We would be faithful stewards of the ministry of God's Word. We want to do it every day and steer clear of gimmicks and, and labor in, labor in the ministry of God's Word. Now, let me show you something. What happens, what is born out of this sustaining ministry, this laboring ministry, this ordinary, everyday ministry of Paul, some extraordinary things are born. The text is clear here in verse 11 and 12. This is extraordinary, and it is the work of God. Look at this in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Paul never did this. God did this through the hand of Paul. Paul never went to Ephesus saying, you know what? I'm going to have a healing ministry in Ephesus. I'm going to build a big compound. Probably do a television network. Get a plane so I can fly around to the other churches. No. Paul labored daily in the teaching of God's Word, and then God did extraordinary things. The extraordinary things, by the way, are not the things that we pursue. They are the things that we receive from God's hand through ordinary labor. I would argue there are so many believers today that have missed out on the extraordinary things of God because you're not engaged in the ordinary things of God in the time spent with Him in prayer and praying for your loved ones and your neighbors and your friends who don't know Jesus and praying for that and seeking opportunities in the ordinary labor that then God ends up showing up and doing extraordinary things. See, we live in a culture, I don't know about you, I, look, what we want is we want a shortcut to the extraordinary, don't we? We want to go find a conference that has some really awesome music that gives me a bunch of goosebumps. I mean, we're, we want to be people that in an hour or a quick weekend get taken to the mountaintop. That's where we want to be. That all the time spent in the valleys, just, you know, just waiting until we can go find our next fix to get to the top. Let, let me just say this. If you're watching Bethel Online and I... I know I run the risk of offending somebody this morning, but I really haven't even begun yet, so that's really coming in a minute. We are not affiliated with the Bethel in Redding, California. People ask that. 
We predate them, Bethel Bible Church. They stole our name. We didn't steal theirs. It just means house of God. That's what it means. Bethel. Bible Church. We're committed to teaching the Bible. And we're a church. We're a community of people living life on life for the spiritual growth of each other and the good of our community. But we do not go out seeking and pursuing extraordinary uh, miracles and gifts and uh, uh, emotional highs. That We're not after that. So, if you're watching, you don't have to email me and ask me that. People email me and ask me things like that. I usually try to connect them with Johnny Russell, let him take them to lunch. See, the problem is we're superstitious people by nature. We do silly things. I'll tell you in a couple of weeks when we're actually in the text of Ephesians why I think we're superstitious people. We're we're that way because I think ultimately we are designed by God. We're created by God to crave the mystery of God. We were We were a people created for mystery and awe and wonder, but that's only rightly satisfied in a relationship with Christ being directed by the Holy Spirit. That is where we enter into the mystery, and we find out in Ephesians the mystery is actually the church. And I'm so discouraged when I see so many believers chasing superstitions and conspiracies and all the silliness out there. Listen, I know why you're doing it. You're wired that way to do it. But that is only satisfied in the context of the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit when we participate in this thing called the mystery. That wasn't it either. All right, verses 13 through 16, you see, here's some guys, they come along, not even going to get into it, seven sons of Sceva. They think, oh, we really like what this Paul's doing, we're going to try to do that. So they go to mimic it, they end up encountering some evil spirits. These spirits beat them naked. So it's one thing to get beat up. It's another thing to get beat up by an evil spirit. It is a whole new category to get beaten naked by that spirit. I mean, that is a beating. But that's what they got for pursuing things that were extraordinary apart from this ordinary relationship with Christ that we're called to daily under the direction of the Holy Spirit. They were trying to mimic what they saw. They had no interest in Jesus being their Savior. Well, after all this, there's this great conviction that takes place in Ephesus, and, and it's this kind of cultural revolution, this, this sublime um, phenomenon that happened. Paul's teaching the Word. People are coming to Christ. They're coming to Christ, and they're, they're being convicted and saying, you know what, I feel convicted about the things, the magic stuff that I'm doing. My Artemis magic kit that I have. My book of Artemis spells, you know, that I've been using. I, I'm convicted about that. So they began to take this stuff and they're like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to resell it to somebody because I don't want them using it. So they had a good old fashioned, you know, 1980s book burning. They weren't doing it because they were trying to overthrow anyone. They were doing it because they were convicted. They didn't want this stuff anymore, and they began to move on. It, you know, it, it's, um, it, the reality is they were exchanging the mascots that they had. They'd come out of a religion that was filled with mascots, and you could buy them. They were trinkets, you know, like Aggies and Longhorns and 
Red Raiders, you know, it's how you identified with the thing you're doing. But the reality is Jesus is not the mascot of the church. He's not paraded out at halftime to entertain us and inspire us. Jesus is the majestic king of the universe. We don't just wear him, you know, out of a spirit of camaraderie. We bow before him. And that's what's happening to these people. They're being transformed. Well, just as things start to get cooking, Paul, in verse 21, is resolved. The Spirit has come to him and said, man, you've got to leave. It's time to leave Ephesus after three years. It would seem um, unexplainable otherwise if God hadn't shown up. Things are just about to get good. And then things get really crazy. Just as he's about to let everybody know that he's going to leave and he's got to go back, there are other things that Paul's going to do, this resolve to go to Rome. There's a complaint that comes, and it's the complaint of Demetrius. Look in verse 24 of Acts 19. It says, For the man named Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver shrines, he made all the, the, the mascots of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, we know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. So what happens in the next few verses, here's what's interesting. You can actually go to Ephesus today was there just in 2019, took a group from Bethel. And you can walk the road. You, you can walk the road that this riot takes place on. And the crowd began to grow, and they're rioting in the streets. They, they walk down this road. They go into the theater at Ephesus that seats 25,000 people. It's one of the largest theaters still in place in the ancient world. You can go there and you can climb the steps and sit on the marble and it's, 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 it's phenomenal, actually. It's breathtaking. And the theater fills 25,000 people. And for two hours, this riot screams at the top of their lungs. Artemis the Great. Great is Artemis of Ephesians. For two hours, 25,000 people sitting in a theater shout this at the top of their lungs. Things were out of control. So the believers take Paul and they're like, hey, uh, we got we to gotta hide you because they want to they wanna kill you. Well, here's what I would want you to know about that. No one today worships Diana. No one. In fact, the temple today is in ruin. It, it would take the skill of an archaeologist to uncover what time and irrelevance have buried. Archaeologists aren't even exactly sure where the temple of Diana stood. In Revelation chapter 5, you've got four creatures who for all eternity, these impressive and awesome angels, Four of them stand at the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the chorus of eternity will be us joining this worship. But for eternity, they stand and proclaim that the one true God is holy, holy, holy. And that 
he's the Lord God Almighty. Well, everything in this world has an expiration date. Everything you're giving your energy to, everything you're giving your money to, it has an expiration date. And one day, if the Lord tarries, it will be ruined. It's only the life in Christ. It's only the life as part of the body of Christ that for you is eternal now. Well, there's a clear-headed clerk that shows up. He saves the day, calms the crowd, says, hey, here's the thing about riots. They don't ever really accomplish what you want them to, and you might in the end find out that you're on the wrong side of it anyway. A couple of things I want to encourage you with, and then I want to close. We are about to invest as a congregation in the study of the letter of Ephesians which if you'll engage in that study, meaning, I want you to read the letter. It's six chapters. It takes you about 15 minutes. I'd love for you to read it before you come on Sunday mornings or before you log in to watch. I'd love for you to read it. If you don't read it, it's okay. You can still show up. I want you to still show up, but I, but I want you to read it. I want you to engage in the study. I, I want you to dig in. I we're going to spend several weeks, actually several months, digging into this life-changing letter. You may find yourself in the next weeks to come coming face-to-face -face with Jesus in a way that you may never have done before. That's what the Holy Spirit does through God's Word in our lives, by the way. I want to invite you to dig into this with us. Get a plan. Set a goal. Parents, it's the beginning of the years. Get a plan with your kids. What do you want them to learn this year? Psalm 139, there's some great things written for you, for them, he says. Ephesians 2.10, we'll look at it several weeks from now. Your life is God's poem. Prepare as if God's reciting your life. Watch the opportunities that present itself. Listen, maybe coming out of Acts 19, like the believers there in Ephesus, these this thing that took hold, maybe there's something to renounce in your life this morning. I don't, I don't mean legalistically, but maybe, maybe through conviction, there would be something that you would set aside. Then I want you to pray. I want you to pray for what God would do in your life. I want you to pray what God would do in the life of this church. I want you to pray what God might do in the life of this region that he has set us in, this greater Tyler area, this East Texas region. The next chapter of what Paul does is he comes back through the end of the third missionary journey, and he'll see the Ephesian church face-to-face -face for the last time. Actually, he just sees the elders for the last time. And he tells them, you know, it's the passing of the baton, so to speak. Tells them how he labored with them, reminds them of that, and says, I, I want you to do the same thing and protect the flock and guard the truth against error and help the weak, and it's better to give than receive. And, and, and for several decades, the Ephesian church was a very successful church. 
But before the New Testament even closes, with all of its success, it had ceased to be healthy. Jesus will speak to them directly in Revelation chapter 2. This is somewhere around the end of the first century. They'd done a good job guarding truth. They were doctrinal. They had good theology, but they weren't healthy. He says, you've lost your love. He says it this way, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you have at first, or had at first. It means to leave it, to let it lie, to leave it for someone else to do. Don't listen, don't, they believed the right things, but they had abandoned love. Maybe the culture around them had hardened them. Maybe they became cynical as they looked around at the increasing sinfulness of the Roman world. Maybe it was the leadership of Rome that had angered them. By this time, at the end of the first century, Domitian was the emperor. And his wickedness and evil made Nero look like a kitty cat. But they'd abandoned their love. Paul writes to the Corinthians, if you speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You can have all the faith there is to have. You can move mountains, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. If you give it all the way, you deliver your body up to be burned. But you don't have love. Paul says you gain nothing. I don't do this very often, but I want to close with something that a guy named Russell Moore wrote this week. Russell is a president of Ethics and Religious Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a council member of the Gospel Coalition. He wrote this. He says, as I watch the images on television of angry mobs pouring into the United States Capitol, my hands were trembling with rage. friend who served for many years in the government texted me, this looks like the fall of Rome. Indeed it does. Including the reality that years before anyone who scaled the walls of the eternal city, Rome was captivated with bread and circuses. What can Americans, especially followers of Jesus Christ, do in a time when it seems that our very republic is more fragile than ever before? Well, the first thing is that we can be a people of truth. That we're a people who, as Jesus commanded, we speak out of the abundance of our hearts with congruence between what we believe and think and what we say. The problem in this country and in the church is not, first, that so many people are falling for crazed and irrational conspiracy theories. The problem is too many people who do not believe such things are afraid of those people who do. Why? People are not afraid of mobs overrunning their houses the way they have overrun the Capitol, but they are fearful of dealing with those who do believe in endless conspiracy theories or make distinctions between sheep and goats on the basis of theology or even political ideology, but in levels of enthusiasm for personalities associated with such ideologies. Many are exhausted knowing that every word from their mouth will lead to psychological warfare. Moreover, too many people, including within the church, have used apocalyptic language for everything except the actual apocalypse. Every election is supposed to be the last one for our freedom. Every group of people with whom we disagree are just about to destroy the country irreparably. An entire generation of people who've grown cynical because they know that not only do such things end up happening, the next existential, existential crisis means the last one's forgotten, but also because they know that quite often People saying such things don't believe it themselves. It is stoking passions in a dangerous way. And any leader can have a peaceful life if he or she just pretends to be outraged by the right things 
and remain silent about what is truly outrageous. Enough is enough, he says. It'll take decades to rebuild from the wreckage in this country. But as Christians, we can start now. Just by not being afraid to say what is objectively the truth, Joe Biden has been elected president. Millions of babies are being aborted. The pandemic is real. So is racial justice, injustice. So is the sexual abuse of women and children. If Christians are people of truth, we ought to be the first to acknowledge reality. The stakes are high. As the church, we like Augustine at the fall of Rome, have another city, a city that will outlast all others. We have, as the book of Hebrews says, another country, which we can see from afar. We have, as Paul says, a better citizenship, one that is in heaven. But for now, we also have this city and this country and this citizenship. For now, we have a republic if we can keep it. More importantly, we have a witness of people who are for integrity. Not just for our side, for peace, not just when our people want it, and for truth even when telling it comes with a cost. I, I would say that is what love is, clinging to love. He finishes, countries can fall. I hope this one doesn't. But either way, let's not fall with it. It's one of the things Paul wants to make sure we know from the outset. As he writes to a group of people experiencing a lot of the same things we're experiencing. Let's not fall with it. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you could do, and that is that you would take the truth of your word and you'd change us by it. That it would not return void. So, I pray that those things I spoke this morning that are in accord with your word, that were led by the Spirit, would you, would you help us to hang on to those things? And everything else would burn away before we even leave this room. Because, Father, we, we want to know you more. We want to grow in our love for you. And Father, in turn, grow in our love for one another and for our neighbors and for this city and for this region for your sake. And so, Father, help us to labor well in the ordinary ministry that you've called us to. And Father, we trust you for what you would do that is extraordinary in our midst. We ask all this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.